And we're back. QAV 623, June the 6th, 2.17pm on the West Coast. No, East Coast. Which coast are we on again? East Coast. How are you, TK? I knew that. (laughs) (laughs) Really well. Good, thank you. That's good. How was Wagga? Fantastic. Got some golf in? Yeah. Well, actually, the weather was really good. A bit like Sydney, it was sort of 20 degrees. Uh, Days are pretty short, but uh, nice and cold, but the day was lovely, lovely and sunny. And you got to watch a spider? Yeah, as I was telling you, I saw a spider eat an insect, which was absolutely chilling to watch this insect <laughs> walk, just mosey on over near the web, get caught, spider comes down, completely cocoons it in about 30 seconds, pulls it up, starts to eat. It was just, oh, <laughs> nature is chilling sometimes. That reminds me of Tom giving Shiv the uh, scorpion gift. Yeah. <laughs> in succession. <laughs> I want to do a shout out to Warren. One of our uh, relatively new club members had a good Zoom session with Warren last night and walked him through building a checklist and that kind of stuff over in WA. Say hi, Warren. RBA today, Tony. The market was up yesterday, briefly, and then everyone said, oh, the RBA is probably going to announce another rate rise. Has it happened yet? Well, this is like 2 o'clock, isn't it, normally? No, 2.30. Oh, 2.30, so. Yeah, we're about to find out. We should have recorded, waited 10 minutes. Yeah, I'd be, well, we'll know during the recording. I'd be surprised if they don't. And, you know, the whole bang this drum all the time about interest rates being a blood instrument, but someone should go back, and perhaps they do in the RBA, go back and just see how effective raising interest rates is. Like, we're in this cycle now of wage growth, and that's one of the reasons why I think interest rates will go up. Wages are going up because of inflation which is also being pushed up because of interest rates because, you know, rents rents are going up and the cost of doing almost everything is going up because of interest rates, which is forcing wages up. So the problem isn't wages by itself or interest rates by itself. The inflation is being caused by energy, so the Ukraine war, amongst other things, and uh, supply chain issues as a hangover from COVID. At least the supply chain one starts to resolve itself, but why put up interest rates? It just makes it worse. So I'd like to know if there's any analysis which show that raising interest rates is actually helping in this circumstance, because uh, it's almost a fiscal problem that the government's trying to alleviate, at least on the energy side, by providing some subsidies and capping prices. They can't do much about supply chain, I guess, but that should resolve itself. So it's almost like a vicious cycle. Interest rates go up, wages go up, wages go up, interest rates go up. It's a very blunt instrument. So um, I hope someone at the RBA is looking at that. It's the James Bond of economics. <laughs> Why is that much money, Penny? More recent James Bond. In the first <laughs> of the Daniel Craig films, M says to him, I think it's the first one, I realise you're a blunt instrument, Bond, and I don't expect you to understand. <laughs> but try to stop blowing people up in <laughs> embassies. <laughs> Dame Judy. Dame Judy, yeah. Uh, i tell you what's not going up, Tony, are uh, houses by the sounds of it, because builders are going bust, apparently. Do you see this in the ABC today? No, I've been, oh, I haven't seen it in the ABC, but I've been watching it for the last six months. It's, well, we were talking about it last year when the first of them started to go broke, and now it's getting worse. And it's because, as we said last year, they've got contracts with fixed prices, but their inputs are going up and they just can't make money. Yeah, my mate Tony Ashwin, who's uh, a builder down in the Gold Coast, when they started to go down, he said, you wait, man, there's going to be a the whole, this is just the beginning of it. And he was right. This is in the ABC today. How did the construction industry enter an insolvency crisis and how can it get out 
It says, um, Phil Dwyer, president of the Builders Collective of Australia and builder of 40 years' experience, says the insolvency crisis in the construction industry is a nationwide problem. He says currently there's a great escalation in insolvencies. The data bears this out. According to ASIC, 1,709 construction companies entered administration between July 22 and April 23, up from 1,284 in the same period 12 months earlier. Dwyer traces the current insolvency crisis back to the Home Builder Grant, which was introduced by the Morrison government in June 2020 as part of its economic response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The program offered a $25,000 grant to owner-occupiers who signed eligible contracts between June 4th and December 31st, 2020, or a $15,000 grant for eligible contracts signed between January 1st and March 31st, 2021. As a stimulus measure, it worked too well. As Tim Lawless, research director from CoreLogic, told ABC Melbourne's The Conversation Hour in 2022, HomeBuilder became oversubscribed as people rushed to sign contracts before applications closed. By February 2023, the scheme had received 138,000 applications and distributed $2.52 billion in grants. Dwyer says introducing the home builder scheme into an already heated industry created a volume of work that has proved unmanageable for the nation's builders. The government should never have done it, he says. Two years on, supply chain issues and inflation caused by factors such as COVID-19, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and labour shortages have created a crisis. Builders operating on fixed-price contracts who cannot pass on increased costs to customers have been hardest hit, with the price of raw materials such as steel and timber increasing between 40 and 50% during the pandemic. Many operators have simply run out of money to finish projects. That is exactly what's happening, and it's to my point. If that's one of the problems at the moment, inflation is, you know, they're, they're, those builders are facing inflationary issues and they've got fixed price contracts. So let's put interest rates up. <laughs> it's just, it's not the answer. It really isn't. The, the government, you know, when I talk about fiscal policy, I'm talking about what the government can do. It sh- I haven't heard of any activity yet, but it should be focusing on the industry because builders collapsing means unemployment in the sector and that's going to be a recessionary drag on the economy if it's not happening already then pretty soon but yeah but the solution put interest rates up it's not the solution it makes it worse maybe we should get somebody from the rba on the show you know anyone in your uh highfalutin circles that you mix in Oh, I know, I know an ex-member or two but i'm not sure they'll come on <laughs> <laughs> really why not moving right along Stephen Mab, chairman, chairman Mab of the Australian Shareholders Association, um, came down from his ivory tower to call me last week. <laughs> he heard us complain on the show, me complain on the show last week that uh, the light portfolios are taking a hit because I'm sitting on all this cash and I can't spend it, and suggested we could park our cash in some ETFs. He suggested particularly Beta Shares ETF AAA which he said pays 4% less a 0.2 management fee, or in VanEck TBIL 4.5% US Treasury bills. So at least you'd be getting, it's not a lot, but at least you'd be getting a couple of points on your cash while you uh, sit there and wait for something to buy. And he said the good thing about these things is you can sell them when you want to cash get your cash to invest. What are your thoughts on putting our money in ETFs when we can't buy anything for long periods of time? 
I don't know. I'm not familiar with these two. I had a look at them this morning as I was prepping for the show. How long are we holding the cash for in the light portfolios? I can't say accurately, but I'd say for a month we've been sitting maybe more on a lot of cash. You know, I get to buy a couple of things here and there, but, you know, I got to spend some this week, but I had to buy double parcels of a couple of things when GNC and KAR became buyers this week with crude oil and wheat becoming buyers again, which we'll talk about later in the show. But um, most of the portfolios, the light portfolios, have been sitting on between 20 and 40% cash for weeks and weeks and weeks. Oh, well, if that's the case, if it's more than a month, then it's worthwhile. But I had a look at the these two ETFs that Steve recommended. And the first one, which is called um, AA or stock codes AAA, pays a dividend monthly. So that wouldn't make sense to invest in it. But you are taking risk because it's still listed on the stock exchange and the monthly dividend yield isn't that great. And it could be eaten up by a movement in this actual ETF share price, but it's possibly a, a place to park it. I've questioned Steve's comment about 4% yield. I don't think that's the case with it at the moment. What happened to it when Steve called me on the 31st of May? <laughs> share price had been going up and then it just fell off a cliff on the 31st of May. I mean, it's only 10 cents out of 50 bucks, but still. Yeah, the movements aren't big. So that's. It may just pay a dividend or something. It tends to do that. It seems to go up for from the beginning of the month. It, it goes up to the end of the month, and then it falls at the beginning of the next month. So this is their monthly dividend, right? Yeah, it pays a dividend. But I added up the last 12 months' worth of monthly dividends and got roughly $1.25 on 50 bucks. So it's, it's paying about 2.5% yield. And on a monthly basis, if you divide that by 12, it's, you know, bugger all. So you're not really benefiting a great deal? No. A couple of other points. I mean, in in my personal case, I've just gone back into the market yesterday, probably the same time you did with the dummy portfolio, because some things turned up, a couple of commodities turned up into buys, but there were also some other rises which I bought into. But I think I was only in cash for a couple of weeks at the most. And if I think back, the last time I was in cash was COVID, and that was a perhaps a month at the most as well. So I don't tend to stay in cash very long. And that leads me to the last point. Well, there's a couple more points to make. When I do go into cash, it generally sits in an offset account, unless it's in my super fund or something like that, but it goes into an offset account. So I'm saving mortgage interest on that. So that's worth more than putting them into these ETFs. But the other point is that these kinds of ETFs are something I was talking about a couple of weeks ago. I really want to highlight that I'll call it the reach for yield, which goes on in the market. If something's offering a good yield, don't ignore the risks. And so the risks for these two ETFs, one is a US Treasury bills ETF. So you've got currency risk. I don't know if they hedge, but if they hedge, it it comes at a cost and it reduces your dividend payments. But Treasury bills are bonds and you know bonds have been fairly volatile in the last six or 12 months as interest rates rise. And then there's yield curve inversions and potential calamities, which which can you can wake up the next day and the bonds may have moved quite a bit. So you're putting your capital at risk to get a, a monthly payout, which isn't much. So on a risk-weighted basis, I'd be careful about going into these. The same with the Australian cash one. I'm not sure how it works. I haven't researched it well enough. But again, currencies can move a fair bit too So um, over the course of a month. So I don't know what the risks are with these. So that's I would just hesitate 
without fully understanding the risk to to put money into these kinds of ETFs. What might be worth looking at is putting them into, if we're finding that it's hard to, to buy something, chances are that, you know, something like one of the sh- the short ETFs that we one of our listeners was exploring about a year ago might be better off for us that, um, you know, like those inverse index ETFs, that might prove better. But again, there's a risk there too. So I'm not convinced that this is a good idea. I, I'm looking at the the other one, the VanEck T-Bill, T-B-I-L is the ASX code. It shows a bit of movement too, but it's like the other one, like it sort of hovers between $50 and $51.50. $50.50 and $51.50. Not to be confused with the uh, first Van Halen album with Sammy Hagar in 1986, 5150, which is apparently the LA Police Department's code for, uh, I think, a crazy person on the run <laughs> for 5150. Yeah, it, it goes up and down by 1%. Like I'm looking at the sort of the two year chart on it, it seems to go up and down from. You know, as I said, $50.50 to $51.50. Not a lot of movement there, but pays a little bit of a dividend. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, the risk may not be in that in that graph. What happened when the GFC was around and what happened during COVID? Probably more pertinent questions or if at the start of the Ukraine war. I mean, bonds can move quite a lot. Well, this is just a one to three month treasury bond by the looks of it. Like their chart on the ASX only goes back to May, 19th of May. I don't know how that works. Anywho, you're you're not a fan of the idea. So what do I do in light? See, I mean, the difference between light portfolio and your portfolio, the dummy portfolio, we're not sitting on any cash in the dummy portfolio, but in the four light portfolios, we're sitting on like 60, 65 shares, and it's a they're all recent, relatively new portfolios over the last year. So, you know, there's been a lot of rule ones in there and you know 10% of them get ruled one and you've got 70 stocks on the portfolios that's seven replacements and there haven't been seven stocks to buy <laughs> for a long time i'm you know i tend to buy for the light portfolios one or two a week if i'm lucky i can find and usually in the last few weeks they've been second parcels of things that we already own or the yeah, this week i end up buying double parcels of KAR and GNC just because I knew I was probably not going to get to offload that cash, you know, otherwise. And I thought it's better off having it in something rather than in nothing. We don't have an offset account for the light portfolios. What do I do with it? I just leave it in cash, Cam. I mean, if the stocks that we want to buy are going down, then the cash is actually going up in terms of its usefulness. So even though we're not earning interest on it. Sure. Just doesn't look good in our comparative performance to the STW every month because the STW is going up and our cash isn't. Yeah, and we could put some kind of notional earnings on cash, but oh, I just think we have to wear it. Wait for the turnaround and we'll all look good. Suck it up. And so just just in recap for people who are having this problem themselves or this issue themselves, so number one use of cash, I think, is to put it into an offset account, reduce your interest bill. Number two would be to put it into a bank deposit, depending on how much you have, because that's government guaranteed, so that's risk-free. Even if you're only earning 1% or 2% a year and you only have it in for a month, so it's bugger all, it's still risk-free. Putting it into ETFs, even though they might pay more, does come with some risk. Number three is to put it on Tony's horse that's running at Randwick (laughs) this week. 
I don't have one racing at Randwick this week, but yeah, go cast in, in the spring. <laughs> <laughs> Number four is to find your uh, local friendly mobster and uh, give it to him to put out with a vig. No? Okay. No. <laughs> I can tell you the cafe to go, though, to ask around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I bet you can. <laughs> it wasn't that many years ago when I was pretty sure that's what you did for a living, part of the Irish mafia, the Ranger mafia in Sydney. <laughs> Somebody else who's uh, not waiting around is Maya CEO, John King. Myers announced that John King will retire from his role in the second half of calendar 2024 and will return to the US because things are just going so well over there. He figured, you know, I don't want to miss out on this great renaissance that's happening in the US. <laughs> Not exactly uh, in a hurry. No, I think a hallmark of his tenure is given 18 months' notice or at least 12 months' notice. So succession planning should go reasonably smoothly. But he's been a terrific CEO, I've got to say, for Meyer, and faced a lot of difficulties. He's turned it round. I mean, their share price was down around 25 cents, I think, when he came in. And it's now, even though it's come off recently with the, all the problems with discretionary spending with the, because of rising interest rates, uh, it's still at least double what it was when he came in. It sounds like he hasn't been there for long, but he's been there, I think, since about 2018. So he will have served six years by the back end of 2024, which is a kind of an average tenure for a CEO. He's had Solly Loose sniping at him the whole time and lots of board issues to try and manage. But he's done a great job. He's um, an experienced retailer, and I tip my hat to him. He's done a great job. My share price five years ago was 40 cents, 40.5 cents, currently trading at 68 cents has been as high as uh, $1.07 just uh, back in March. But, yeah, it's come off quite a bit since then. And it's, what was its lows? Oh, COVID cough had dropped down to 10 and a half cents. Okay. Sort of been growing nicely since then. I've done my uh, time as a yeah. <laughs> shareholder on and off. We own it in a couple of uh, light portfolios. One's up 14%, the other's up 18%, so it's not taken over the world. But I remember when I owned it in my own portfolio at one point, it was up like 100%, and then it came all the way back down to its high price. <laughs> I was telling uh, Warren about that in our chat last night. Like He was asking about the old, the old question that we always get about trailing stop losses and that kind of stuff and talking about I said, you know, it explained your thinking around it, how um, if you stick to the rules with our sell triggers, more often than not, it works in your favour. I said, but you don't remember the ones where it's worked in your favour because you didn't sell it, so you didn't think about it. You only remember the ones where it went all the way back down to your buy price and you got out and you, you're like just pissed, <laughs> pissy about it, but you don't pay attention to the times when it actually works out in your favour unless you go back and do some sort of analysis. It's funny how that works. Okay, so we talked about interest rate rises and wages. Uh, I saw this article in The Fin yesterday, I think. Will DIY investors stay in love with the share market? It's by Jonathan Shapiro. Uh, more than half of the population has a share portfolio, but will high and rising interest rates force them to choose between stocks and property going on about some event that somebody spoke at. Interesting here, it says that uh, 
1.2, I think we've talked about this before, but 1.2 million Australians have started investing in the share market since 2020. I think nearly all of them listen to the show. That means 10.2 million adults or more than 51% of the population have investments outside of superannuation or the family home, home an increase from 46% in uh, 2022. That's a big jump in one year. But uh, they're saying that with interest rates and the share market's going to struggle, people might feel like they're better off putting money in property. They have the requisite to mention of Scott Papen here. You can't write an article in the Australian media about investing without talking about Scott Papen. It's, it's in his contract. He needs to be mentioned at, at every opportunity, and there needs to be the same photo of him with his bare feet in the camera, apparently. I don't know why I need to see his feet every time they mention him, but somebody's got a foot fetish like Quentin Tarantino out there. It's because he's the barefoot investor. I know, but still, do I do I have to see his feet every time they, they quote the book, really? It's in his contract. It's in his contract, yeah. Got to, got to show off the feet. Trademark. Good thing he didn't call his book the bare ass investor or they'd have to have a photo of his ass every time <laughs> they talk about him. Sorry, it's in the contract. <laughs> Like living with Fox. So <laughs> he talks about uh, somebody. I don't know who this is here. In February, he posted uh, somebody who goes by the name of Mr. Quick. In February, he posed an intriguing question. If you had $200,000 to invest, what was the highest return you could achieve with the greatest certainty? The answer is north of 10%, but there is a caveat. The condition is that the individual has a mortgage over the family home. If that's the case and that person is in the top 45% tax bracket based on current interest rates, any investment has to return more than 10.5% after tax to beat paying off your home loan. If one adjusts for risk premiums, that figure might be about 16%. The point is that there's now extremely high opportunity cost to do anything with your money, including adding to your share portfolio if you're carrying debt. This will have implications for household balance sheets and equity markets, we're now undeniably in an environment of higher interest rates, which few Australians have experienced. So he's saying you, you've got to be getting at least 16% to make it worth your while rather than just paying off your mortgage. Yeah, if you factor in the risk premium. How many super funds in this country are returning an average of 16% per year? Well, none. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a couple, but not many. No, certainly not over the long term. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he makes a good point. It's basically the point we've been making about rising interest rates that they affect the asset pricing of the growth stocks, the ones that when interest rates are low or zero, you just throw some money into them and speculate if you can afford it. All that's off the table now that you, you know, that every time you make an investment and you've got a mortgage, you're really trying to beat, you need to beat that mortgage hurdle. So the hurdle rate went up for um, people to invest. So yeah, less, uh, less people throwing money at or gambling with the stock market is, I guess, the essence of the article. There's a few other things in there which I liked about only a small percentage of people use a financial planner, basically because of the costs. And I think that that will improve. The government has to change the rules around that. But people have been talking about robo-advice for a long time now, the last four or five years as being the solution. And that's perhaps where, you know, your mate ChatGPT plays a role in providing off-the-shelf advice for people at a, a very cheap cost. So I think that's potentially in the, on the horizon to solve that problem. 
I think there's a smoke alarm. Must be a sourdough bread. It's the clothes dryer. <laughs> I can't hear it. Chrissy had set fire to the house while I'm in here, but it's the clothes dryer making this high-pitched whistling noise. Sorry about that. That's right. I can't hear it. Doesn't matter if I burn to death as long as you can't hear it, Sam. Yeah, you'll you get out in time. Come on. You'll wing chung your way through the window or the door or something. <laughs> hey yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Venusian karate. That's what uh, the third doctor knew anyway. The job John Pertwee, yeah. Venusian judo, I think it was. Venusian judo. Sorry to interrupt there. Get back to the point. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree with the article. And um on top of all that, you know, this is probably, you know, a bit of a chicken and egg thing. If if people are making that decision about whether they invest in the share market or pay off their mortgage, there's less people in the share market, so the share market doesn't go up as quickly or maybe even comes down, which becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, again, this is one of the arguments about um, we see people selling out of the market at the wrong time and then getting back in at the wrong time. But according to that article, there's like every man and his dog is now investing in the Australian share market. Was, I think, is what he's saying. Well, he said the numbers were up. This year or up until this year? No, I think it's up until means... Okay, so there's the thrust of the article is will they stay? I think so, yeah. He's saying uh, 51% of the population of investments outside of superannuation of the family home, an increase from 46% in 2022. So there's another, an extra 5% of the population are invested in it this year. This is from a, um, he's linking to a study quoted in the Fin May 30th, so a week ago. Pandemic frenzy spawns 1.2 million new Australian investors by Lucy Dean. So saying that a whole ton of people are investing. Women accounted for 50% of the new investors and also made up 50% of those intending to invest, ASX senior manager Rory Cunningham told the Stockbrokers and Investment Advisors Association. I wonder if he then told everyone to sell their shares in the ASX because uh, it's not having a good day, the ASX itself. No, well, they just came out and said chess wouldn't be replaced until, was it, another 12 years or something? 3032. 3032, yeah, eight years. I read through that story this morning to try and figure out who was the IT, main IT contractor who's been, who was pitching the whole, oh, we'll do it on blockchain. It's all going to be great. Don't you worry about it. Wasn't Chinese walls, was it? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> but there was no mention. I don't know if it was all, you know, completely internal build or if, yeah, which would be rare these days. I think companies don't tend to have huge IT departments like that. No, they partnered with a, with a blockchain what you, oh, installer, assembler. I don't know what you call it. A blockchain company. <laughs> I forget who they were, though. I could think of other words I could use, but I'll probably get sued, <laughs> so I better not. <laughs> anyway, back to fifty women of 50% of new investors. Well, you know, we did a show about getting more women investing, and obviously it paid off, so you're oh. welcome, females <laughs> out there. <laughs> it is good to see. They should be making up 50% of investing or investors. Well, the head of research and investment trends, Irene Guatmatia, said that while women made up 50% of new investors, the percentage of overall investors who were female had not moved from 42% since 2020. 
still 42% is a lot higher than I would have guessed. I thought it was like 10%, 42%. Yeah. That's pretty good. Good on you, ladies. Well done. Yeah, my question was going to be if the case okay, is all these people are investing in the share market. We know they're not um, going to financial advisors because they're too expensive. We know they're not listening to us. So where are they getting their investing strategies from, do you think? Influencers, yeah. <laughs> That's what the article suggested. But you don't know how many are just buying ETFs as well. Or Bitcoin. Or Bitcoin, yeah. We don't know much about where they're investing. Because it doesn't talk about share market investors. It talks about investing outside of super and the family home. They could be buying wine or art or cars or watches or anything collectible as well. Okay. Racehorses. Yeah. Like kind of surprised by those numbers in that I had seen articles about the people who withdrew money during COVID, you know, now having not much left and going home with their tails between their legs and the numbers dropping. So I'm surprised that this year's higher than last year. Do you think you can do better than 16%, Tony? Well, I have over the, over time, but it, that is getting to be a, a quite a high threshold, isn't it? I think our dummy portfolio is returning about 16% now. Per annum, over the long haul, yeah. Per annum. But for me, the mindset isn't how much tax am I paying, add that to the mortgage, add the 6% risk premium everyone talks about and try and reach that hurdle. It's can I make any money in the share market? Yes. And can I have the dividends pay the mortgage interest rate? Yes. So to me, it's still a no-brainer. But I, I accept the premise that the person was talking about in the article. Not how I see it, though. And that's the end of the free episode of QAV for this week. If you're a new listener, I just should let you know how this works. So we have a free episode every week, runs for about half an hour. We have a premium episode also every week. It goes for another 30 to 60 minutes, depending on how many questions we get. It's where Tony answers questions from our club members. If you want to check out the premium episodes and all the other benefits of being a QAV club member, which is access to the checklist and, and the Bible and uh, the private Facebook groups and the other comms channels that we have invites to the dinners, Zoom calls, etc., etc. Just sign up for the two-week free trial and check out all that stuff out. You can do that at qavpodcast.com.au. Look for the um, free trial button there. And if you uh, like the idea of value investing QAV style but don't feel like you have the time or resources to uh, you know, learn how to do QAV for yourself, think about signing up for QAV Lite. That's our relatively new service where we send you the stock tips every week. And then we also monitor those stocks in a portfolio. And if they become a sell, we email our QAV Lite members and tell them that it's time to sell that stock and what to replace it with. Check that out too. It's sort of a low effort way of doing QAV. Still better if you know how to do it yourself, I think, because Tony could get hit by a bus and then where are you? But, uh, you know, while he's not, <laughs> we can do this. So check that out, qavpodcast.com.au slash light, L-I-G-H-T. That's it. If you don't want to sign up to any of those, just keep listening to the free episodes. And if you have any questions, uh, shoot me an email. You'll find that on our website too. All right, have a great week and good luck with your investing. 
QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions.